0: Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. We know that climate change, a major concern of this week's United Nations gathering, touches people across the globe and affects issues from immigration to food production to the economy. But voter suppression? Well, think about it. Imagine you're a resident of the coastal United States, battered in recent years by a succession of hurricanes, storms, and floods. After the latest weather event, You're challenged to know when your power will return and what program will help you rebuild, much less where you have to travel to vote and have that vote count. That's one of the concerns of a group of black women organizing throughout the South. The issue is especially urgent in Louisiana, with important ballot issues coming up in the next months while the effects of Hurricane Ida are still being felt. Ashley K. Shelton, based in Louisiana, leads the Power Coalition for Equity and Justice. And she's a founding member of the Black Southern Women's Collective, a group of Black women who commit to share resources, insights, and strategy to improve conditions. In her former work with the Louisiana Disaster Recovery Foundation, now the Foundation for Louisiana, she saw firsthand the devastation caused by Hurricanes Katrina and Rita and engaged local, state, and national partnerships to develop and nurture civic engagement in their aftermath. And now she's turning her attention to what policies need to be in place to ensure that all Americans, especially those disproportionately affected by devastating weather events, can fully participate in democracy. So welcome to Equal Time, Ashley. Thank you for having me today. So glad to be here. Now, I was so intrigued by the topic because, you know, though most people have recognized the very real effects of climate change with all the floods and fires and hurricanes of recent years. I'm not sure many people realize how these events can hinder voting rights. So can you explain that? Absolutely. So I think that we
1: had an election actually slated for October 9th. And with the landfall of Hurricane Ida and the, and the fallout from that, um, there was no way that our communities would be ready to have, you know, have an election on October 9th. And now,
0: this was in Louisiana, correct? Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. I
1: apologize. Yes, in Louisiana. No, no. And, um, and, you know, and, and also, too, you have to remember that many of our poll workers are retired seniors um, and community members. And a lot of our polling locations are schools, gyms. Uh, parks and those are that that's the very infrastructure that gets damaged in these hurricanes. And so for us it was really important to work with the governor and the secretary of state to move the election date so that folks could have a chance to recover um, and be responsive. And then also too for there to be proper election administration. You can't administer an election when half of the electric grid is down um, or just being restored right before, you know, an, an, uh, an election.
0: Now you were able to move it, right? Yes, yes, and so the um, the governor
1: and the secretary of state worked together, and uh, along with us and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, um, and we were able to uh, have it moved to November thirteenth uh, for the primary, and then December eleventh for the general. And so we were able to get those moved from October 9th for the primary, and then uh, November thirteenth would have been the would have been the general.
0: Yeah, now, why are black and minority communities most affected by climate change and least able to recover quickly?
1: I think um, in commun- you know, like in a state like Louisiana, we're a poor state. There are a lot of inefficiencies within FEMA. So, for example, from Hurricane Laura, which was last year, that devastated uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana. I mean, they've still not recovered and they still also get inundated by the, the rain and the wind from all of these other storms. If, you know, whether they get the bands of the, you know, of the hurricane or just like I said, the wind and the rain there is a price that gets paid when you have to rebuild, you know, time and time again, and the infrastructure that's supposed to help you do that doesn't really work. And so, you know, we've been working with FEMA to try to streamline, um, how folks can get their applications approved. We've been working with FEMA to to streamline, like what are all of the programs and how do they work so that folks can understand like what are eligible expenses. And so, you know, I think that one of the things that, you know, that happens is that these storms hit at the end of the month. You know, folks, you know, get paid, you know, on the 1st. And and at the end of the day, they've spent five hundred dollars evacuating or more, and then just to come home to a grid that's down and throwing out everything in their refrigerator and trying to figure out how to how to you know how to make it work in the, in the meantime, as the the city tries to rebuild the infrastructure. And when you are working class family, poor family, you know, like these, you know, kind of setbacks um, are just so hard to recover from because no matter what, we have folks asking the question, so do I have to pay rent for September since I've pretty much been displaced um, from my apartment and or my, you know, the home that they were renting? Um, Also, can I get my deposit back so that I can find additional housing? And so it's all of these questions that come into play that disproportionately impact communities of color um, given they were already dealing with a a number of different circumstances um, to begin with and whether that's Black women making 48 cents on the dollar of, you know, of of their white male counterparts to the impacts of the pandemic that, you know, I remind folks just a week before Hurricane Ida you know, we had seen the largest number of cases since the pandemic started in Louisiana, as well as the largest number of deaths, um, you know, in our state. And so, you know, these are just compounded traumas that, um, you know, that keep impacting people and in particular communities of color um, who typically don't have the space to um, to lose $500 evacuating, um, then, to, then to turn around and find out if your home wasn't damaged, um, that maybe the FEMA will not cover those expenses. But if, you know, what are you... <laughs> I mean, you know, who can survive in a, it was the hottest week in, in Louisiana. It's like 80% humidity, like 90 plus degrees every single day. And, you know, that's, you can't live in a dwelling under the, in those kind of extreme temperatures.
0: Oh yeah. And while you're worrying all about all of that, you have to then figure out where you're going to vote. Will your vote count? I, I want to ask you, do you think it's a coincidence that these voting laws that seem to restrict voting among certain populations are popping up in states across the country, and they're being challenged as well, that seem to affect the same communities that are disproportionately affected by climate change.
1: I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it is uh, very much so um, part of just the ongoing attempt, I think, to just, you know, kind of neuter the voices of voters of color across this country. And I think Louisiana, interestingly enough, we were able to actually win some voting rights laws that actually were progressive that did expand early voting by three days for presidential elections and extended the time in the the voting booth. But, you know, but ultimately what we know is, is that every year we're, you know, our election protection program is auditing you know, how many voting locations are moved or closed in Black communities versus other communities, right? How many, um, you know, like where is the information to help people understand where their new polling location will be? And so it's those kinds of things where it's not as as big as, a, uh, you know, getting a law passed, but just as insidious when, you know, folks are trying to vote and, and their polling location has been cha- closed and changed and they don't know how or where to go to actually have their, vo- their vote and their voice heard, which is why we push a lot of early voting and communities of color, because we know that like that's where election administration seems to be the strongest. Um, and we don't have to fight and deal with those issues of where's your polling location.
0: I want to f- keep following up on that. You talked about the problems in that are complicated by weather, say when you're polling places moved and maybe it doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I would like to dig a little deeper on how weather conditions and climate can affect other issues of voting, like uh, transportation to polling places, like uh, the availability of absentee ballots. And what are some of the other areas that we can connect both of those issues, voting and uncertain weather conditions?
1: Again, it, it's all in the details. So many people are what what we call constructively displaced and so if you're in Mississippi with your sister because your you know community was you know decimated by this hurricane for you know 2 to 3 weeks you return home or you can't return home then you know in Louisiana when you request an absentee ballot they want to send it to your Louisiana address and what's real is, is that we have to start um, respecting um, the realities of climate change and allow people to request a ballot for you know from wherever they're constructively displaced to, versus, you know, just saying that like, well, let me I mean, what are you going to send a, an absentee ballot to to my mailbox that no longer exists at my home that no longer exists or whatever. And so it's just trying to solve these problems ahead of time. And times of disaster too, you have to look at your local, you know your local and state laws because, You know, last year, we, you know, we actually had to take the Secretary of State to court um, around uh, creating COVID, you know, allowing the COVID reasons for requesting an absentee ballot to stand. And we won. We did win because we knew that COVID was a real concern. Louisiana had been disproportionately impacted by COVID. Um, And so, you know, making sure that our elderly and those that, you know, had underlying health conditions had the same access to the ballot and their vote as anyone else you know, it was really, really uh, critical. And so, when we start to think about climate change and and elections, the reality is is that as people go through these storms and these disasters, they will be constructively displaced. And so, how are how are they supposed to get their ballot if it has to be mailed to a Louisiana address? But you're living in your cousin's house in Houston um, while you figure out what's next um, to rebuild.
0: Yeah. Now you you are based in what New Orleans. Yes. 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 And so so tell us a little bit more about why this issue has become so urgent in Louisiana and and these constitutional and other issues that are on the ballot that you are going to be voting on. What are some of these issues and why is it so urgent? It's always
1: urgent when it's about voice and vote and power um, and who has it and who doesn't, right? And um, this election season in Louisiana, New Orleans is the only parish in the state of Louisiana. We have parishes instead of counties, but um, it's the only parish that has anything else on the ballot of, you know, of substantial other than these constitutional amendments. So the state of Louisiana, all 64 parishes. We'll have to vote on four constitutional amendments, one of one, which is a tax swap that, um, you know, seems like it's providing a tax cut to everyone, but it really is providing a deep tax cut to the rich. There's another amendment that looks at preempting local um, power around sales tax and how the municipalities work with the state around getting them their sales tax re- revenue, which seeks really to just debase the power of, you know, our major metros that are, um, that are currently all led by African-American leaders. And so, one, you know, they were able to get these amendments on the ballot when there's nothing else really, there's no other reason for folks to turn out unless you're in New Orleans. Baton Rouge does have a judicial um, race and a few things on the ballot. Shreveport does have something on the ballot for the general, but not the primary. So it's hard, you know, like so for those of us that do voter engagement, it's you know, it's really hard to get folks to focus on this. And then when you when you add a disaster, um, it just compounds that with an exponent, right? Like it's it's really difficult to to move folks to vote um when their lives are in disarray and and they're reeling from any number of problems that come from, you know, being displaced by a disaster. And so for us, we've been doing a lot of disaster recovery. You know, we, we moved about $150,000 in the first nine days following the storm to provide direct cash assistance and support um, to those impacted by the storm. We've then moved an additional $50,000 to communities uh, along the river parishes that, that took a direct hit from Hurricane Ida. And then for the next two weekends, we're gonna be doing um what we're calling a rebuild-a-thon where we're you know coordinating volunteers um, to be able to work across the impacted areas to do everything from debris removal and um what we call mucking and gutting of homes to tarps and, and other things uh, for some of our some of our more um, experienced um you know folks in Louisiana that, you know, because of disasters you do get good at some things, right? <laughs> uh, Yeah,
0: unfortunately. Now, Ashley, you're, you're telling me a lot of what you uh, and your organizations are doing, but it seems that you would maybe want government to be more responsive uh, and look at these needs as well. So what needs to be done to, that you think in the way of policy and practices, both on the challenge of climate change and this issue of voting rights and how they intersect?
1: I think it's a couple of things. Um, you know, I've I've had um, you know, the the you know, the experience of serving the people of Louisiana for, you know, through multiple storms. Katrina, Rita, Gustav, Ike, um, the BP oil spill as well. And Oh my
0: goodness, um, Ashley, know, you've been busy. I know.
1: Well, you know, the BP oil spill happened on my birthday and I, I took it as a sign that maybe I needed to not live in a disaster paradigm any longer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I, but, but in that time, you know, what you learn is that one, we need the federal government to fix the Stafford Act. The Stafford Act, you know, is the kind of the governing document of disaster response and how FEMA then, you know, rolls out their response. Um, and there, there are several provisions within the Stafford Act that make it really difficult to fully recover communities after storms. How so? Um, for, for example, like how certain dollars can be spent. For I'll give you another interesting example. So once a de- once a, a declaration of disaster has been made um and they they have to you know list out the parishes and or counties that are included within that declaration, it it stands, right? like it, 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 that that is that is all that can be included. And so if by chance you found out later other places were also impacted, but we didn't just didn't know it at the time, um, you know, you cannot go. I mean, like it basically takes another act of Congress to have those places added in. And I think that just happened in Newark from what I understand that, you know, because of Hurricane Ida making its way up to New Jersey and um In New York, that um, they did the declaration, the disaster declaration, but they didn't include all of the impacted counties. And now, Mm -hmm. you know, it takes, you know, like I said, it just takes it takes a a lot of work to get those things uh, fixed.
0: Yeah. And in the meantime, people are suffering.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And then I think too, you know, like one of the big things that I think I get frustrated with is that, you know, I've been doing this for over 16 years, you know, i had a hit on the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. And it's really frustrating to be fighting the same fights with FEMA that I fought, you know, 16 years ago. And it, it feels mm-hmm. like we're not learning the lessons. Um, and that, you know, when we don't learn the lessons, you know, nobody at FEMA is hurting, but these families and communities across uh, the impacted areas are, are are devastated. And so, you know, I think that for us, it's like we need a quick response. I think, you know, one of the other solutions is, is that, you know, we've been, you know, screaming about, you know, we need to trust people with resources. We trust businesses with cash and, um, you know, direct cash assistance. We saw with the PPP loan um, that basically with a very, you know, little bit of information, um, and a clear, you know, request of what you were going to be doing with the resources that we could move money really quickly. But we don't we don't offer that to to people impacted by storm and storms. And we have to. And it's just like the the child tax credit that's happening right now. That direct cash assistance of three hundred dollars you know, a month is going into people's bank accounts. And, and what we what we know for sure is that that money goes back into the economy. And so in times of disaster, we need to be able to do those same things. I mean, for me, I wish we could just, you know, take the number of people impacted by the amount that they're willing to give for the disaster declaration and just divide it among the people impacted versus all this bureaucracy and inefficiency and ineffectiveness um, in people's greatest time of need. I think that I, I could maybe reconcile it if it wasn't literally like the worst thing that's happened to you. And there's just no infrastructure to be able to support you to get back on your feet.
0: Oh no, yeah you got to find a lot of paperwork and you might not even have it anymore. <laughs>
1: And also, too, internet, broadband, um, you know, in our rural areas, the internet not, and, and broadband is an issue anyway. And it'll be weeks before electricity has been restored, but, you know, the, that other infrastructure takes more, you know, will take more time. And so where are you supposed to be filling out your FEMA application if there's no internet in your community right now? The people of, uh, you know, New Orleans, they have paid for a grid that could withstand 140 mile power winds and new Orleans did not see 140 mile power winds during hurricane Ida, but the grid still went down for over a week. And so, you know, and so we've got to also to think about how are we regulating, um, you know, energy and, and these other providers, um, for infrastructure that we have clearly paid for, but obviously did not get right. And so, I mean, I think that there's those pieces as well.
0: And all of this needs a Washington fix uh, from uh, from these laws have to come down because you're following a lot of federal regulations. I just want to ask, have any lawmakers um, taken on your cause or conversely started to push back on some of these fixes that you are wanting to promote? Because... Uh, yeah. Um
1: you know, I think i'm I'm heartened that folks are, you know, like it it is I think with the with the kind of joint traumas of uh, the pandemic and the storm, I think it puts us in a different place, right? I think that, you know, I've been heartened by folks trying to figure out solutions. You know, uh, council member Helena Moreno has, you know, been taking on energy and trying to hold them accountable and energy is fighting back, but she's fighting, you know, just as hard. And so we've been- She's hardened. a New Orleans, a New Orleans yes, a New council Orleans, person. Yes, yeah. she's a New Orleans council person and she's fighting. She's just saying like, you know, and, 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 and for New Orleans in particular, they are the regulators. They are the immediate first line of regulators for, you know, energy in their, in their community. And then the rest is at the state level with the public service commission. And so it's important for our leaders to like hold people accountable. I think the other, you know, the other piece has been like how, even at the federal level, I think we've got some issues that like they just fixed the airship issue, which stopped the ninth ward from being rebuilt 16 years ago after Katrina. Um, They fixed that this year, but that's like one of many issues within the Stafford Act that, you know, that we've been, you know, working on and clamoring for them to change for years, and they just changed it this year. But I mean, clearly, you know, New Orleans, you know, it's too late for the Ninth War to benefit from um, being able to have their properties rebuilt without clear, you know, without clear airship um, and title. And so, so we've got a lot of things that we know we have to fix, but then also too at the state level, right? Like when the federal government sends us those resources, we have to make sure that we have the capacity to move those resources. And so, you know, Louisiana's got a lot Lot of housing money um, from, you know, ARPA um, ARPA dollars. And, you know, we've got about 500 million. We, we We've dispersed about 600 million. I'm hoping that that number is increasing. But we also have to figure out how to move that money quickly and um, put it on the ground to folks. And, um, and so it's both state, federal and state, too.
0: Yeah. Are any lawmakers in D.C. paying attention to your knowledge <laughs> right I- now?
1: Yes, you know, Secretary um, of HUD uh, Marsha Fudge was here last week. Um, you know, she you know walked through several you know communities. Uh, Biden's been here. Um, you know, Troy Carter, who is our newest uh, representative, he um, you know he um, took Cedric Richmond's um, district when he when he moved to Washington to work for President Biden. And you know, like they've been working on it. And so there's you know we're hoping that there will be legislation that's put forward. Um, we, you know, we're, you know, um, you know, slated to also talk to Cedric about Cedric Richmond about what are, how do we address these issues once and for all? I mean, we're, it's 16 years after the fact and yeah. people are being hurt in the same ways that they've always been hurt by inefficiencies and ineffectiveness, you know, the ineffectiveness of government. And it just, it, it's, you know, and with the, with the compounded issue of the pandemic and what it's done to you know, our families and our economies, it just, it, it it's too much. And I think that that's the one other piece around, you know, the voting piece that I will also lift up is that, you know, I think people are are, are more in than they've ever been about how their vote and their voice matter, because these elected officials are, de- de- term, well, sorry, excuse me, are determining whether or not you have access to health care, whether you're safe at your job, whether your children are safe at school. Um, you know, like I think that before there was an apathy that got through by whether or not folks moved. And now I think that people are more and more clear that, like we've got to get involved in who our leaders are because they are determining our our you know, our our safety and our lives and 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 our quality of life, you know, quite simply,
0: and we have the for the whole country, the midterms uh, coming up next year, which you know could determine the makeup and the control of the House, the Senate, and so much more on the agenda, the president's agenda, whether it will or will not be passed. So, Uh, you would probably have to put some of these fixes in now.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we are working with legislators right now because currently Louisiana law... Requires that the you know the House and the Senate get together to put together an emergency plan uh, for election administration um, in times of disaster, and and what we've been saying is that that's who has we don't have time for that, right? Like we don't have time um, to try to convene folks that maybe may or may not be impacted by the storm or whatever the disaster disaster is. You know, we need to have laws on the books that trigger. Uh, you know, an emergency election administration plan. And so we are working with legislators right now um, to have that slated for um, our regular session in March of 2022.
0: I want to ask you, is is there a question uh, that I have not asked you, Ashley, that I should have because you still have some message you want to communicate and some things to say?
1: Uh, you know, and I think we touched on it a little bit, is that, like, you know, this isn't just a Louisiana problem or a coastal problem. I mean, it's a problem that that faces all of us. And, um, you know, and I think that, um, again, it, it on the surface, it doesn't seem like it's a big deal or that there's any malicious intent around, you know, stopping or giving giving folks access to their vote. But what we do know is, is that um, is that it does indeed you know keep people from their vote um you know like even these constitutional amendments that are on our ballot um it was done because there was you know like they knew that there was not really any reason for folks to turn out other than to you know vote on these constitutional amendments and now that's further exacerbated by a storm right and so you know at the end of the day it just makes the, it makes the job of those of us that you know that work to do voter engagement and um and and, and increase turnout and participation in these elections It makes our job so much harder. And so I think, you know, for me, it's just like, you know, it's not just us, right? It's, it's, this is a problem that we have to um, recognize and address as a country, um, and ensure ensuring that folks have their, you know, their 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 vote and their voice. And I think that um, you know, we are starting to see the ways in which it, you know, it pops up, whether it's, you know, intention, you know, it like I said, no one wants to apply malicious intent, but it certainly feels like it's there. And I think for those of us that do this work every day, um, you know, you get a little frustrated, but um but again, you know, like, you know, you know, I think as much as, you know, we're fighting hard and we're winning, you know, like, you know, like I said, we did expand voting rights, unlike many other places in the country in the deep south. And then, you know, the governor also vetoed several more hurtful pieces of legislation here in Louisiana. And so, you know, the work, you know, we just continue to fight and continue to do the work, but that, you know, we do need some federal fixes and we need to acknowledge that climate change is real and that it is having an impact on, on everything, our families, our children, our homes, um, and and what that means when you have another crisis like a pandemic, um, you know, also happening in the background.
0: Oh yeah, I was going to say you have to vote. Uh, neither rain nor sleet nor gloom of night, which is to borrow the post office's uh, slogan, but then even the post office's delivery of that is affected it's true. by true. It's, it's <laughs> true.
1: Oh my gosh. I mean, New it's, Orleans is, has just started to get regular mail again, and it's been a couple of weeks since Ida. And so, um, and so it's just real issues. I mean, we've been trying to get supplies in. Um, you know, to be able to help and, and, and support communities. And so we've just been, we've been shipping everything to Baton Rouge because if we ship it to New Orleans, it takes, you know, two additional weeks uh, for us to receive it, yeah.
0: I want to thank you, Ashley, Ashley Shelton, Ashley K. Shelton for coming on Equal Time and helping our listeners make that connection on how climate change affects a lot of things, including whether your voice and your vote counts. Thank you again for appearing on Equal Time. Thank you for having me. So what's keeping me up at night? Government gridlock and the natural reaction of a populace on edge and tested in the last year or two to just tune out and retreat to the comfortable. I admit there are times when I change the channel to Mozart. Hey, everyone needs a break. But democracy only works when everyone's paying attention. I write about that in my roll call column and about the prescient warnings of one Sinclair Lewis. Check it out. Now, one Equal Time listener has started her worrying early. This Democratic voter is sketching out who her party might run in the 2024 presidential contest. She's busily calculating the odds of success for a series of presidential, vice presidential tickets, but can't decide. And it really is keeping her up with three years to go. Let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. And thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.